This is C-SPAN's Afterwards podcast. This week, former Xerox CEO Ursula Burns, the first black CEO of a Fortune 500 company, shares her insights on American business and the corporate world. Her book is called Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. She's interviewed by Amazon Senior Vice President Alicia Bowler-Davis. I am so excited to have this opportunity to talk with you today about your new memoir, Where You Are Is Not Who You Are. While we've never met, I have followed you for many, many years, and I've been incredibly inspired by your journey. So I'm just really excited to talk with you. I am happy to be here and happy to help. Okay, so let's go ahead and get started. Um, In the preface, uh, you state it was hard to find anything truly remarkable or book-worthy about your story, which suggests you were a reluctant author. What finally convinced you to write your story? Yeah, it was at the urging of so many people. And at the end of the day, it was my husband and Vernon Jordan, my kids and my nieces, and who said, just go ahead and, and do it. As I was, so let me clarify the two things about newsworthiness and then reluctance, right? There was nothing, I, you know, you live your life. I say this in the book, you live your life a day at a time. So you get up in the morning, you do something, you do work. You know, sometimes it's spectacular, a child is born. Most of the times it's pretty ordinary. You make breakfast on a Sunday, whatever it is. But when you're living your life, you don't think about these individual days chunked together in amazing experiences. They're just days. And for me, for sure, I lived my life um, looking forward more than looking backward. And so when I was thinking about the book and people were saying, write the book, I kept saying, what would I write about exactly? I mean, how do you write about these many different days in your life? How do you, I read, I'm an avid reader and I read these books and fiction generally, but amazingly <laughs> done great imagination all this stuff like that compelling embracing stories and i'm like i've lived my life for the last and it didn't seem to sound anything like the books i was reading right so it was it was really really hard and so that's one the reluctance of an author i'm an engineer i do know how to write some business papers i definitely read a lot and the one thing you would never consider me or i would never consider myself was an author when somebody said, you're an author, I'm like, who would read this stuff? I don't know if I write well enough to do that. So it was, it, it, I guess what happens with most, most authors who are not authors, who write a book, a purposeful book, like, you know, I'm writing about my memoir, et cetera. You step back and go, my God, this is, this is not worthy. It turned out to be hard too, obviously, because I, it's, memoirs are um, actually about your life. And the time that I started writing the book, I, have, I, I had gone through or was going through some really tough times. You know, I was going through, um, you know, a, a presidency. I had moved to, to London so, because I just couldn't, I couldn't bear being in the United States. I couldn't bear listening daily, every day to this crazy discord that we knew would be bad, but it had gotten so bad in, you know, by 2018 and 2009, it was like, wow, I just couldn't 
2017, I couldn't take it. And I was so happy I moved. No, you know, felt guilty about doing it, but I had to move out of the country. That was one. My husband was mm -hmm. sick, a little sick. That was another one. I was transitioning jobs. That was another one. So it was all, it was all kind of not the best time. <laughs> or, yeah. or it turns out in hindsight, it was the perfect time, right? Because what yeah. you needed to do in hindsight was reflect, exactly. reflect, reflect, reflect. So. so I am so happy that you decided to write your book. And as you mentioned, you said your memoirs about your life. And so you tell your life story in this book, I think in a very comprehensive way. You go from your childhood, early education through college, your ascension you know, to top leadership at Xerox, the board work, the civic service work that you did for our country, by the way, that I wasn't as familiar with. But I found the book also to be deeply personal mm -hmm. and vulnerable. Mm -hmm. And you were transparent, direct, and unapologetic. And so when you were setting out to write the book, was that your objective or did this approach evolve as you began writing it? No, I, it, it wasn't, it was my objective, but it wasn't an objective, right? One of the things that is, um, one of the things that I'm known for, and I, I don't say this like famous known for, one of the things that I am known for, uh, who I am, is that I am, I am pretty no BS. I'm pretty direct and people say authentic. And what that means is that I, I don't, I haven't been trained. And this is not necessarily a good thing for, so not everybody can follow this advice, but I haven't been trained to butter up a story or like clean it up too much. I haven't, there's a whole bunch of, or to, or to, be graceful in some of the, you know, to, 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 to like soften the blow. I, I try, in, obviously you can see it even in the book where I just avoid things or they're too personal about somebody else. But I think generally, when I write this in the book, I say that, you know, I, as a CEO, I was really not great at, at <laughs> taking, looking at dumb questions and just, and just kind of, you know, I just couldn't do it. It's, it's my nature is about, you know, somebody asks me a question, I answer the question. If I don't know the answer, I say, I don't know the answer. This whole idea that there's this dancing around it and long words and explanations around stuff, that that's not me. So the the reason why it is authentic or personal or like is because that's all I know. It's not another way for me to do it. I don't know how to do it a different way. This is not necessarily always a good thing, right? There are times when you literally have to figure out a way to just get you know, get the heck out of there. <laughs> I mean, yeah. just make a, make a dash for the door. But um, definitely in this book, it was not a place that I could, I felt that I needed to. So I didn't even try. It was not something I focused on. Well, I but tell you the- I'll What I said you. was what I thought in the book. Well, it came through and I tell you, it resonated very much for me. You, you also mentioned that during this time, there were a lot of things going on in your life personally. Um, you know, we started a pandemic. And then obviously you talked about the things that were happening in the country. Um, I think of it as we're dealing with a racial reckoning. So how much did this influence you, your writing, the experiences that you chose to share um, in the book? Did that influence you at all? Oh, for sure. Yeah. For sure. One of the things about the racial reckoning, I, I actually don't think it's only a racial reckoning. I think that the racial reckoning is the foundation for a fundamental restructuring of our society. 
Um, you know, whenever you think about, whenever societies, U.S. society thinks about people in need or bad things happening, one of the things that's funny about this is that it appears in the face of a black person, right? But we have as many white people, actually more in not pure numbers, who are living below the poverty line. We have as many white people who don't have access to good food, to good health, to good education. We have as, so it's not necessary for us to actually find the, the black guy. Um, even though whatever is generally happening to the white guy, it happen in, happens in spades, no pun on words, um, to the black guy. So I think that the racial reckoning is more than just a racial reckoning. It's a societal reckoning around the structure of our society, which is one that has created a mass divide, a massive divide between the small number of people who have a ton and this very large number of people who have less than a ton and a large number of people at the end who have less than a sustainable um, lifestyle. They can't, I mean, they, they struggle. My mother, and the reason why it's so personal to me was, and the pandemic made this clear, I wrote this in the book, and the book was essentially finished before the pandemic kind of started. And then you had to, had to go back and write it, right? Rewrite that in. I mean, it wasn't totally finished, but by the time the pandemic came up in like, you know, we thought we would be out of this. If you remember when it started, it was, oh, yeah, a couple of months, they'll get us all, whatever. It took a year and a half for this thing, you know, and it kept, it kept getting darker and darker and darker yes. and darker and darker. So you have to kind of go back and look at the point. I make it this point in the book that my mother would have been a fundamental casualty of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. pandemic. She would have not, our family would have um, not made it. Because my mother's income was very, you know, she, she got food stamps, welfare. Um, and even with that, she got rent supplements. My mother had to find work to make, to close the gap. I mean, this is pretty standard, right? Um, unfortunately, but it's pretty standard. It's not only, my mother wasn't the one who was singled out. My whole neighborhood was living this way. And she did childcare help a work, worker in her house. She was, you know, state sanctioned program where she had children come into her house, you know, of, I would say lower middle-class people who were working. They brought their kids and we took care of them in a day. My mother took care of them in a day. You know, we had four or five. She was licensed to have four or five. She made 4,000, her highest salary, $4,400 a year. And that was that. And the welfare took care and rent supplements and, bartering and whatever we could do took care of us. But imagine if she were alive and we were living our life now, the $4,400 would have been zero. Zero. Because there's nobody coming in our house. Exactly. And we would not have been able to survive. My mother, we would have, and I, I, I remember this when I turned about 16 or 17 years old, I realized my mother was struggling she was because up until that point i was just this clueless kid who we ate good tasting food every single night we had a stark but extremely clean um very well organized and kind of like decorated apartment in a very bad building 
we went to school every single day. My mother would bargain hunt and she'd go to thrift shops. So we had clothes all the time. It wasn't new or fancy, but it was fine. So here we were, my, me and my brother and my sister, just kind of hopping along. We'd get up every morning, we'd do whatever the hell we did. And my mother was literally struggling and panic stricken. I could just imagine now, and I started to realize it when I was 16 or 17, that she was, that she was struggling. She was struggling emotionally because she was always worried about us, always worried. Mm-hmm. And she was struggling financially because, and she just couldn't keep up. She couldn't keep up. And so she ended up dying when I was 25 and she was 49. And it took me so long to realize this. Maybe that's what she was trying to do. That's what she was trying to do. What she was trying to do was not make it about, not make it our problem, to make it her problem. My my plea and a lot of the work I talk about is it should be no one's problem. That should not be the basis of your day every day, right? You can't get up, oh my God, how are we going to feed them? How are we going to keep them safe? My God, I have to say, spend every penny I make. Barter, go in debt. Oh my God, we had to get them an education that was above the absolute disastrous education that we would have gotten if we went to public schools. It would have been a disaster. And so it should not be this hard to get the basic needs, right? Yes. Um, to people, particularly to young people, right? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't even be able to be mean about it. And that's one of the things that troubled me, right? We, in the discourse that's happening today, particularly when President Trump was president, I didn't, I didn't agree with President Trump, and but I, before, you know, but he was the president. So you, somebody invoted, he was voted in. I didn't vote for him, but that's fine. And I was just like other Republican presidents or Democratic presidents that I didn't agree with or senators. I said, yeah, we'll, we'll, they're the leaders. But yeah. something changed here. There was a change here in the tone. The tone was mean. The tone was you deserve it. The tone, it was just a different thing. So it was, it, it, I remember thinking, my mother is in this environment and President Trump would say, she deserves to be there and so do your fans, so does your family. And I, so anyway, it, I get really emotional about that, not, not because it's, you know, because I was suffering back then. I just realized that there were, that there were a lot of people out there today who are who were making it just getting by right a yes. little getting by and then the entire rug got pulled from under them and they're now i mean out of their houses you know living in hotels it's just a disaster so anyway i'm sorry no i'm glad you talked about that because i'm reading the book i was just so just amazed at how strong your mother was yeah. And how she sacrificed and how resilient she was and how she just kept going. Um, your mother, Olga Burns, a Panamanian immigrant, a single mom. And she did everything she could for you and your siblings and sacrifice. And I found it very um, remarkable that you said you didn't even realize how poor you were until you were much, much, much older. Um, so she's obviously uh, was amazing and played a huge role in your life. Um, in fact, many of your life lessons from from the book came from the, the lessons that she shared with you. So what was the best advice she gave you and, and how do you apply that today? The best advice that she gave me, the best saying that she had 
I see a lot of good ones, but was God doesn't like ugly. <laughs> now, you, just think about this statement, right? It's like, God doesn't like ugly. She didn't mean ugly people. Right. She meant an ugly soul, an ugly spirit, a mean person. She said this all the time when I would, I'm a pretty introverted person, meaning I, I live kind of like in my space. So I would get silent and sullen, a little bit snappy or whatever, sometimes just outright you know, rude. I was very well behaved kid though. I, of the, I was very well. And she would, when I, when that happened, uh, she would say to me, God doesn't like ugly. And it's a good check throughout. It was this statement was a good check throughout my life, particularly as I got more and more powerful and um, wealthier. That was, that's the best. The other one that she said a lot was what's in the book the title of the book. Yes. She would say this to me, and this was interesting. The way she said it was, Max, where you are is not who you are. And don't forget this when you are rich and famous. Now you have to understand how bizarre wow. this was. <laughs> in high, in, when I think about it in hindsight, I was like, how the heck? We didn't know. I, you know, I went to high school, grade school, high school. We didn't know who CEOs of companies were. Right. Back in 1970, we didn't know that. We didn't, we didn't have this thing to Google and look up what these people, who they were, what the product lines of companies were, what a company structure was. I had no clue. I had no clue. My mother had less clue than I had. And she, made, she said this thing to me, and I'm like, rich and famous, how in the world <laughs> does she even think about rich and, richness and fame, right? Because that's not what we, we never spoke about this in my household. She spoke about being a good person. She spoke about carrying your own weight. She spoke about taking care of my brother and sister and they taking care of me. She spoke about not being ugly. She spoke about leaving behind more than you take away. She never talked about earning a lot of money and the ascension up a corporate ladder or being rich or being famous. She didn't, but she was something in her knew enough that she's, tagged on this thing at the end that is exactly where I was right I'm I am I am rich and famous and you can be an asshole when you're rich and famous excuse the curse this is a small curse word (laughs) and get away with it and my mother made it very clear that that would be as bad maybe worse worse than being than pretend, than behaving like your your physical inva- uh, environment was poor, dirty, um, you know, unforgiving. That environment was not who we were. That just happened to be where we were. And remember this, girlfriend. When you are sitting on the top of the world and you you start acting like a jerk, that's not who you are either. You have to remember that that position is not your soul. That position is not you. That's not how you present yourself. How you present yourself is with this thing, right? And this thing, it's not with this thing, right? It's not with that. You don't pull out your wallet and say, here, here's who I am, even though we have some of that happening now. But anyway. Yes. That's just wonderful that your mother saw that in you, your, your potential and where you would be and wanted to make sure that you were a good human being. And that you didn't forget where you where you came from, 
Um, another gift, I, I was fascinated with this story from your mom was this extreme focus on education, although she wasn't um, educated and she sacrificed tremendously to provide the best education possible. So you and your siblings attended a private Catholic school, um, very strict environment uh, where corporal punishment was the norm. Yep. And your brother left the school because he couldn't tolerate the environment while you and stayed. My sister. And, and my sister. your sister. Okay, so if they both left the school, but you stayed. Why'd you stay and what impact do you think that decision has had on your life? One of the things that is that in my family was pretty clear when we were growing up. I'm the middle child. And uh, my, my brother is the boy prince. <laughs> my daughter is the... Uh, girl baby and I was kind of like there you know the typical middle child my mother was amazing she didn't treat me any differently than she treated my brother and sister but um I was always when I was growing up I'll describe myself as being self-contained I kind of live in my space I live a lot in between my ears. Both my kids are like this now, which is really interesting. So don't need a lot of um, a lot of things around me to keep me engaged, or I can kind of get a book, get a pen and pencil, whatever the hell, do some math, whatever. So self-contained. And different than my brother and my sister, I was very compliant. My idea was to fly right below the radar screen so nobody noticed me. And it wasn't like an active decision every day, but it, in hindsight, that was it. I literally created very little stink, particularly in before I went to high school. It was, you know, you come in, they give you a whole bunch of homework to do. You keep your mouth shut, you do the homework, you come back, you know, no, just kind of stay away from me. It was how I did it. And my ability to do that allowed me to stay in school. My brother and my sister in many ways were braver and definitely a little bit more of a reb, more rebels. My sister's gay. And she, at that time, we, we all knew she was gay at that time, but it wasn't, my mother was pretty basic about everything. Love you, whether you like girls or you like, she didn't even talk about it that way. It was like, right. it, this just, you're a child, my child. Yeah. That was one thing, but we had a structure in society that obviously was nothing like it is today. Right. So that was definitely an oddity. It was not a, it was not something that people actually wore on their sleeve. And particularly in a school like I went to, being Black, my brother noticed, noticed this, I didn't, was definitely a differentiator, particularly a Black boy. And my sister noticed her difference through the school as well. And I think I was probably the most ordinary in my family. So I just basically <laughs> made, it, made it through. I, 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 until I reached high school, which I went to a phenomenal high school, I mean, not at the time for educational standards, even though it was an unbelievably educational, uh, foundational educational place. It didn't have, you know, computer classes, even what we didn't have calculators that they had just come out. then. there was no such thing as computer classes back then, but for anyone. But we didn't have that. We didn't have um, advanced math classes. You know, you went up to like pre-calculus or something like that, but there was nothing to advance. What they taught us in my high school was how to study, how to write sentences well, good penmanship, how to write English, how to study and how to work hard and persevere. And that was 
that prepared me for, for life. But my brother and my sister actually couldn't deal with the, with the, the corporate punishment for both of them because they were not traditional, was above and beyond what they could stand. I just stayed below the radar screen. So while I got, I got punished a lot, you know, hit mm-hmm. on the butt with the, it was nothing like my brother and my sister, nothing like it. And so they, they basically left the school. My brother got, my sister got kicked out of school. Actually, my brother did too. So they, they basically, they didn't leave. They were not allowed to come back. <laughs> <laughs> so it was, it was funny. They're both, um, you know, both just idols of my, my sister in particular is, you know, she's just an amazing person, yeah, amazing person, you know, by far from perfect, you know, but really like kind of the foundation, you know, there's always like a soul in the family. Yeah. She remembers the date. She will say, call the people. I'm the organizer in the family. So I'll do the, we're going to go on vaca- vacation. Let's do a vacation. Here's where, you know, that kind of stuff. My sister, my <laughs> sister is, uh, tomorrow is Tanya Tara's birthday. You should give her a call. Or, you know that kind of thing. Make sure that you don't forget all of the stuff like that. So really good. That, that's wonderful. I'm the organizer in our family too, and I have a sister who, just as you uh, define your, describe your sister, just always thinking of other people. So thoughtful. It's great to have those those people. It is um, absolutely great. It's great. So I was thinking in your book, you talk about being in, in college and. Uh, with limited resources, and you're struggling a little bit with engineering curriculum, but determined to succeed. You persevered. Uh, you were later one of only 25 students inducted in the International Honor Society for Mechanical Engineers. Can you tell me about the moment, or when did you realize that you had what it, what it took, that you knew that you could do it, that you could persevere um, in spite of all of these challenges? Yeah, you know, the thing about that is that you, it, it was gradual. So, I knew when I went to Poly, Brooklyn Poly, I knew, and I'd gotten into other schools, but I really wanted to, first of all, I liked Brooklyn Poly in the way that it was kind of an urban, it's not, was, it's still is an urban school, an urban school, it's a New York City school. I liked, liked that, didn't have a campus, had one out in Long Island for a small number of students, but most of the students went to school in Brooklyn. I loved that about it. Um, it was reasonably diverse. It was definitely diverse from a wealth standpoint because it was New York. You had a lot more diversity than, than you did. I remember going up to visit Yale on the train and that was definitely not diverse. <laughs> so that wouldn't work. Um, but it was, I, I, I got into school in a program that was, was developed for a student just like me. And it was called the HIAP program, the Higher Education Opportunity Program. So what does just like me mean? We had less money, so we needed school scholarship. They provided money. They provided a stipend to allow you to get to and from school and you know buy your books and have some lunch money. You had to work in the summers, but that was totally, you know, I was used to that, so it was not a big deal. Um, they had tutoring and a counselor to prepare you for the fact that this is gonna be difficult difficult and different. And fortunately, I had this training from my mother that didn't allow me to kind of, in the first instance of stress, run away. Mm-hmm. And so I went to school, I remember this very clearly, went to class, we had to go to school in the summer beforehand to be prepared 
to know, which, you know, I think is very important that this is what you're going to do. You have to get the you know, train is, you know, they expect you to, it's not like high school where there's a teacher who's dead. They expect you to take some control to select classes. So they did all that preparation for me. They also prepared me to understand that I was not as prepared as the, some of my fellow students who went to Brooklyn Tech or Bronx Science or Stuyvesant. I went to, I got into the school, even though I didn't have all of the requirements necessary mm-hmm. to get in, right? So fortunately, I had a, like a system around me. I remember a woman named Connie Costa, who was my advisor. And she was this pretty cool Hispanic lady who just was like, hey, you know, I remember going to her saying, I just hate chemistry. I, I, I passed it. But I didn't like it. And I had signed up to be a chemical engineer. And this is not the best. (laughs) Chemistry reminded me of like precision baking. You had to get it exactly right. It was like, oh, my God, I hated it. And I went to her saying, I have to drop out. And I have to leave. She said, drop out. Drop out. You're a freaking freshman. Change your major. I I didn't know I could do that. (laughs) I didn't know you could do that. Basically, you haven't taken anything in any of the class. Change your major. What do you like? I said, I love physics. I love my first physics class. And I love my first calculus class. She said, that sounds like a mechanical engineer. Nice. I said, she said, I said, okay, I'll be a mechanical engineer. <laughs> and the reason why I tell the story as casually as that is one, because it was that casual. Two, because most kids never get that story. Never get it. So I learned about engineering when I was a junior, rising senior in, in high school. I never heard of the damn thing before. I didn't know what they did. I knew I liked math. I knew I was reasonably good at it. I had no idea that I was so far behind. Right. Um, and then I, had, and, and I went to a Catholic school. I mean, I had nuns who taught me. By the way, even in high school, I had nuns who taught me. So, you know, they were the three things you can be. You could be a nun, a nurse, or a teacher. Which one of those three do you want to pick? By the way, none was out of the question. Nursing and teaching was not that bad. I'm like, maybe. But then I looked at how much they made, and I was like, oh, my God, I can't, I can't rescue my family. I can't rescue my mother on that amount of money. So I went to, literally went to a bookstore, to, to the library, sorry, and looked at this book called The Baron's Book. They still mm-hmm. have it. Now it's online. You couldn't take it out of the library because it was a reference book. And I looked up the most competitive colleges and that was one and the careers that paid the most money after four years of college, the career that paid the most money after four years of college in 1976, which is when I was graduating from high school was chemical engineering. That's it. I'm going to be a chemical engineer. What colleges were you going to apply to the most competitive colleges? Yep. I had no freaking clue what the hell I was doing. <laughs> and, and fortunately, it turned out okay, right? Yeah. Turned out okay. My mother gave me access to curiosity and a whole bunch of things. I went to a really good high school that was not educationally expert, but that was, you know, I, I, I throughout my life was educated in the, funda- in the foundational elements, the fundamentals very well. I didn't have a lot of access to everything else. My mother did the, the fundamentals, work hard, the school, my high school and grade school fundamentals. You know, we're going to teach you how to write your letters well. I, you know, I, I, I'm, I, I'm a parent and I know that in schools today, the kids don't learn how to write. They don't learn penmanship anymore. You're going to learn how to do diagram a sentence if you remember that, you know, how English structure should be and those kind of things. And, and in college, the same. I had the fundamentals, you know, get good study partners, study with people, 
you know, do it over, do them over and over and over and over again, just kind of focus on it, fight, you know, fight your way through it. And that, that served me well. Yeah. Okay. Well, let's fast forward to your career post-college. You ended up joining Xerox and you, over the years, you took on many different roles and some that pushed you outside of your comfort zone. And during these times, you obviously experienced tremendous growth as a person. Um, can you kind of give an example of this and how you think taking these uh, roles were instrumental in preparing you to become a CEO? Well, I mean, for, let's answer the first part, the second part first. Mm-hmm. Um, you have to do it. You have to, you have, in order to run a company well, and I mean it broadly well, you kind of have to know the place, right? Or at least know a lot about a place that's very similar to that place. The worst CEOs, people who kind of have no clue what the culture is, who have no clue what the work that people do is and is like. That's that's not, I don't think, a good place to come from. Um, So I was fortunate enough to, you know, Xerox was the perfect company for me, perfect company for me. It was a struggling company, always a little, you know, just a little scrappy. It had a long history of diversity. And I I, want to make sure, because I say this and people say, oh, my God, you know, you had... You guys were perfect. We were far from perfect. I mean, but we were further ahead by 50 years than most companies at the time. We had black male scientists. My husband was hired in 19, what is it, 60 something in a company when they, there were no black professionals in most companies. Yeah. So he, we, I went to a place that was absolutely perfect. It was a little bit scrappy. They were more concerned about what I had in my head than how I looked and definitely more concerned than how I spoke because I spoke fast. I had a New York city accent, all of the things that you could actually do. They, they were concerned about those things, but secondarily to, we need you to solve that problem. Can you go work on this? Are you interested in that amazing place to work? So it was a great company. It was already set up with this belief that education, they came from the same place, that early education is important. So even before I got there, they had this thing called the science consultant program or, and this thing called PRISM that was working with city, inner city of Rochester, city of Rochester, inner city schools to get the students interested in science and to get so on. So it was already, a, it was like a perfect place that I lucked into. I didn't know Xerox, but, but lucked into it. And when I went there, they kept asking me to do things. They said, oh, you work in this lab? I said, okay, sounds like a reasonable thing. Then they said, oh, by the way, we need somebody to work on this problem. Can you work on it spinning this, this really fast? Yeah, sure. We need somebody to go over to Japan and work with our Japanese colleagues to Japan. Yeah. I hadn't been that far away from that long. So yeah, then we need somebody to go over to England. So while it seems as though there was this like plan on both sides, I think that a lot less than the plan, there was a matching, right? We kind of fit. I was open. They were needy. I was needy. They were open. So we kind of uh, fit together. And I was, it was the perfect company for me to go to. I, I don't think I would have made it to another company, made it to be the CEO in another company. I would have been successful, but Xerox was a really good place for me. I did, I fit in there i was disruptive and uh they allowed for some of that disruption i was disruptive and they corrected me when it was out of control or out of we had a director on the board from the day i worked in the company started working in the company we had directors who were black and women this is literally in 1970 
1980, early 1980, this was unheard of. Right now we are talking about this like it's not unheard exactly. of. It's unheard of. There were no blacks, very few blacks and very few women. I had, we had both on our board. Uh, we had a founder and a culture that was about kind of looking outside of the company to get help and to looking outside of the company to help. And so it was a perfect place for me to go. And, and I, I fortunately stayed. Yes. Yeah. It sounds like Xerox was well ahead of its time relative to diversity and inclusion where people could come in and be who they were and could be successful and have an impact. Uh, makes me think about your husband, Lloyd. Um, who you met as Xerox, who was a successful scientist. Um, you described him as being a little different, peculiar, like kind of, I pictured him to be kind of this mad, brilliant scientist. Um, and he, he was successful um, at, at Xerox. And then at some point, you both decide that he should stay home from mm -hmm. full time um, to uh, focus on, on the home. And, and he's been an instrumental role, uh, part of all aspects of your life. Um, how important do you think that decision was for your continued growth um, and your ascension? Um, and then do you, what advice do you have for other women? It was just like um, every question that you've asked so far is part of the like key factors for my success. Right? This is my mother um, going to this company, yeah. uh, the career I chose or that was chosen for me. <laughs> Um, my husband. My husband was a very, very, very peculiar man. He was um, born in Bermuda. He's 20 years older than I am. Well, he was. He died in, 19, in 2019, very unexpectedly, and crushed me, and I'm not going to cry. I'll take a um, breath. And he was one of the first African-American professionals uh, in, in the research and science area. We had some salespeople then probably um, hired by Xerox. He would have been fired from most other companies. My husband was very different. He wore dashikis to work for a while. He had the massive Afro beard and mustache. He um, sometimes drank too much. He smoked. He ran the streets. You know, he did everything. <laughs> that you do that yeah he I loved him he loved me and he was perfect for me even though if you watched us if you were just a fly on the wall and watched us you would say what the heck is going on here <laughs> how are these people working how, how does this work because we we argue we fight we never physically fought but you know we'd argue we'd stomp out the room we would you know, scream at the kids, <laughs> everything that you do in the family. But there was one thing that was not in doubt ever. That was that I loved him enough to keep trying. And he loved me enough to keep trying to kind of, because it was effort for us to fit together. I mean, by the way, I warned this, my kids now who are both in the process of getting married, they're both engaged, right? I keep saying to them, write down on the list the things you love about the person and the things you don't like about the person. Write them down. Look at them. Cut the things that you love in half. Take the things that you hate and intensify them by two and double them. 
And if you can look at that picture and still say, okay, that's the right person. That was my husband. My husband, and that was me. The things that he loved about me, yeah, they kind of, when you get older, you get tired. I had great legs, but I don't know what the hell it was. I got, <laughs> the things that he didn't like about me, I was controlling, I was a little bit of a nag, I was a perfectionist. They got worse as I got older, right? This is crazy. Same thing for him. You know, he was disorganized and oh my God, it didn't get much better as he got older. He was sloppy, like just, you know, he was visually sloppy. You look at stuff and it's like, oh my God, this, you know, it's not in the right place. It's, he was not, um, he was dyslexic. So he, planning wasn't his, uh, his strong suit. And that got worse. And all of the things I loved about him got less. And he was still worth keeping. And that, I, do, I was lucky there. I was lucky there. And he was 20 years older than I was. So by the time I, my life got crazy at work, by the time I traveled like, let's say, 20 weeks a year, by the time it got to the point where, and then, then I, after a while, I traveled 30 weeks a year, 35 weeks a year. By the time it got to the point where it was literally unmanageable for me to be able to get home in any kind of a reasonable time or reasonable consistency to prepare meals, to pick them up, to do whatever. My husband had been at the company for 42 years. Yeah. His thing was, sweetheart, I like this thing I'm doing, but this is getting harder and it is getting easier just to kind of keep it all going. And we sat down and he said, well, I can, I can retire. I said, if you can survive retiring, if you can survive not getting up and going to work every day, that part of the discipline, this is great. He's like, I could absolutely survive that. And he left and he took care of my kids, our kids. I called them my kids. <laughs> He's part of it too. He took care of our kids. But God did other things. My husband was always busy, always busy. Yeah. Uh, cooked meals, great meals for us. Um, you know, dressed the kids when I was traveling, even though not the way I would have dressed them. Did my daughter's hair, not the way I would have, you know, all of the stuff, but it all got done. And uh, I, was, I would complain when I came home. So when I come home sometimes and I would say, you know, walk and say, what? And she said, if you don't like it, you can just stay home and do it. And that was, his, you know, so otherwise, shut your mouth. So he was great. He was perfect for me. He's perfect for me. Sounds like a remarkable person. Um, so when you became the CEO at Xerox, you, in the book, you say it wasn't, you weren't walking into just a great, the, a great situation. There were things happening uh, on a macro level with the financial crisis in the country. There were things that needed to happen um, at Xerox. You were also working on this acquisition of affiliated computer um, services. And, and this was major. And you had to have this personal environment to make sure that it, it, uh, it happened. And you, almost every waking hour. Um, so I know this is a, a, a very, very, um, challenging time, but out of that, you were able to set some boundaries with your your weekends and and your personal time while still meeting the high demands of the job. Can you talk about how you felt um, that that was necess necessary and that you were able to do that? And I think it's important for people to, to, to hear that. Yeah, I, by the way, in this area, I think I make it clear in the book as well that I failed more than I succeeded. So this mm -hmm. is not like I had this perfect solution to, to the problem, but a couple of things that were really important. My, both my kids were teenagers and both of them needed their mother as well as their father. 
not for physical care. By the time they had kind of figured it out. But you could just imagine being a black boy in America or being a girl, and then particularly a black girl in America at any time. My husband and I were very aware of this. We were very aware of the fact, particularly for my son, who was taller and you know brilliant kid and well-mannered beyond belief, you know, all of the stuff that you do if you were raised by my mother and my kids haven't. But you knew that if he walked out the door, this is well before George Floyd, you knew that if he walked out the door, that he was viewed totally differently and that he was at risk. Remember, we would talk to him a lot about this. We talked to him a lot about relationships with women, girls at that time, about relationships with white people, relationships with authority and how you, you know, so on and so on. And my daughter was not under as much physical pressure, but every social, you know, the girl thing, you went through it, I went through it, but think about the girl thing in 2010, I mean, freaking disaster, right? These kids are, they have more choices than they even know what to do with. So we, that, that was important. So the long, long answer was that I had to make sure that I, did, that I didn't let weekends and some very important things kind of fall by the wayside. And I had to really discipline myself to do that. Like I said, I failed a lot, but mm-hmm. I tried. So that's, that, that's you know, the number one thing. But I knew that it was not, my husband and I made this, when he made the decision to stop working, we could have had a babysitter. Mm-hmm. We made enough money at that time for sure to have a live-in babysitter. And we lived in a house big enough to have a live-in babysitter. I remember my husband and I having this discussion and him saying the phrase, I'm not sure who he said it exactly, but we perfected this phrase that we're not going to outsource our children to somebody else, that we wanted to have something to do with them. We want to have everything to do with them, particularly, and if you meet both my my daughter and my son, you will see maybe too much, my husband and I in them. Hmm. The things that we believe, you know, how we define right, how much effort they have to put into things, um, how I want them to take advantage of opportunities and take risks, particularly since we're at the point where we can cover some of their risks, right? When I was growing up, I'd lucked into a great career, but if I had chose the wrong one I would have, that I hated, I would have had to stay in it. I mean, right? right? I, and I got my master's degree, and I remember thinking about getting my PhD, which I don't think I was qualified for. I think I had the skill to do it. But there's a mental thing you have to kind of grind through. through. I didn't think I could do that. And I, but I didn't, I couldn't do it. My mother needed money. We needed money. We got, I mean, just like, what do we, we go work for you? Really? We couldn't do it. <laughs> My kids don't have that, those limitations. So I want to make sure that they, with the same values, go as far as they can. And it's interesting. My daughter is becoming, she wants to be a writer. She's getting her PhD in English literature. She has two master's degree, one a master's of fine arts in writing another master's degree in English literature, English, whatever, MF, MA and um, MFA and MA. And I remember her telling me, you know, the, her brother's going to have to support her because she's never going to make a lot of money. <laughs> and I said, don't worry about it, sweetheart. That's not, that's not what you go to. It's not about that only, right? So we wanted that, we wanted our kids to kind of have that kind of 
thinking and foundation. We definitely wanted them to have some narrow lanes about discipline when it comes to discipline, when it comes to expectations. That was for us to do. That was nobody else to do. That was for us to do. And we did that. And that was what that's why we wanted to stay, that's why I wanted to stay close to home. And I that's one of the reasons why we decided my husband should not go go to work, go back to work after a while, because we couldn't do it anymore. Once they got into school, then they got into things and we had to kind of right. get them. <laughs> exactly. It gets harder. It gets harder. It does get harder, right? We had to give them a cell phone because we didn't want to do the cell phone thing. Young, but we gave my daughter and son a cell phone because they played volleyball. They were in this, it was just a mess. And but fortunately, they were both very practical kids. No, none of this crazy misbehaving, none of this staying out late. We were lucky enough to have lucky enough. We 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 were man, we managed our kids close to home. Yeah. So in the chapter, leave behind more than you take away. You highlight the many years you spent supporting several councils under President Obama, um, including leading his White House National Program on STEM, which was fascinating. Um, and then, you know, obviously you also served as the vice chair and chair of the Export Council. But this, the area on STEM, you were working on STEM before it was like really in our national conversation and doing um, a lot of amazing work there. Um, can you talk a little bit about, number one, why you felt it was important to do this for these roles, not that you didn't have a full job being the CEO? And then uh, relative to STEM, what do you think about our, our progress and what things we, we need to continue to focus on to improve? So the STEM journey was personal, totally personal. I, <laughs> I am who I am. Part of the reason is this, the thing I chose to study. And I chose to study it by accident total and complete, even chemical engineering. I had no idea. I don't know why it was not, I was not aware of this. This was not an option presented to me. It was not something people talked about, but obviously there were engineers out there. But most black people and definitely poor people and definitely black poor people, at least when I was growing up, were never presented with the opportunity to do anything like this because it was like, not for you. And then I would happen to be the, the most ex- thing. I was a girl. And literally women and girls do not study engineering. Don't you know that? The you know, the teachers back then even geared, you know, they stared you away from me. They tracked you to something else. Mm. You can be a nurse. I said this in a joking way, but it's true. You know, a teacher, you can be an educator, whatever it is, you can be a life scientist, go do biology. It is not engineering. It's that's a, that's a specifically male white career. I, I literally have had access to working at the best companies out there, earning a wage that was real. I mean, a real wage from the time I graduated from college, um, working on real stuff. Like you solved it, you perfected it. Really interesting. This is a career, this is the career. You think about what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the need for more sustainable solutions to everything in the world. We, we fly, we build taller buildings as the population gets towards 8 billion people. We need more, more sustainable ways to get nutrition, food. We need to solve the potable water problem. We need to figure out a way to get from here to there faster right, on a plane and more sustainably. And 
uh, all these things I just described, all of them are engineering problems. Not even all of them are engineering. They are engineering. That's what engineers are currently working on. We have data and information about disease. How do we, how do we have a supply chain that makes sense? This is all engineering. It is amazing to me that we literally still have a system that doesn't highlight this and say, this is the, what do we say? Become a lawyer, right? I like lawyers, don't get me wrong. We don't need a lot more lawyers. We, we, we need a lot more engineers. So I think we should train lawyers, but we should really train and make available to young people, particularly young people of color and women, because the numbers are just so large. Even if we got every white male to become an engineer, we'll still be short. We need women, half the population in the world, more than half, people of color takes up another two thirds. We got 65%, 70% of the world are not white men. And most of them not studying engineering. And you just look at my life, simple life, great job, great pay, reasonable pay, um, pretty high demand. <laughs> yes. That's it. So the, the reason why I'm passionate about it is for that. Fortunately, I, I, I said this again, I went to a company that thought it was interesting. We had science consulting pro- program and PRISM way before this was a hot thing. I went to President Obama who thought STEM was important. So he calls me and says, can you work on this thing? So it falls together. I, I think we are beyond, we are beyond um, the idea that we can, we can as, be a great America without having great scientists and engineers, thank goodness. And we're finally getting to the point where we realize that we have to train not just the white guys in it. We have to train some white women in it, some black women, some black men, and some Hispanic people, some Indian, you know, whatever it is. And then for our national security, last thing, we have a great way of life here. It's not perfect. I spent, you know, I talk about it a lot in my book. It's not perfect, but I've been all over the world. I have been all over the world, Alicia. I think that I've been to every continent except for Antarctica. Mm. but everywhere. And I love, I live right now actively in London. There is not a better place than the United States of America. There is not a better place. I, I, I I tell you this and sometimes I'm most of the time so pissed off at it. It drives me crazy, (laughs) but this is not bad. We are, we are, we were on the path of really messing it up under educating under caring, not looking out for each other, this thing about it becoming, I, I say this all, I wrote it in the book, this is not a zero-sum com- country, and the world's not a zero-sum world. If it was, we would have killed everybody over five billion people, right? We have seven and a half, right? I, it was some number, like four, when, a while ago. It's not that we can, we have to do it better than we have been doing it, but somebody does not have to starve for me to eat. Yes. And we have to figure out a way to make sure that we keep an eye on the fact that we take care of ourselves and then we take care of others. And the others are generally close to your family. Then you take care of others. We, it's not, I take care of myself and then hoard all the rest of it. When I see the other guys dying on the road, I just say, oh, but I'm only responsible for me. And we can't make charity a business. We cannot make charity. I'm going to rape and pillage the world, make a whole lot of money, then make myself feel really good by giving it back. It's not charity. It's abuse, right? And we have to make sure the charity is really charity. So 
I, I'm preaching now, sorry. Well, first, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. And this book was just yet another example of you giving so selflessly. So thank you for sharing your story. Um, thank you for the time to be with us today on Afterwards. Um, it was a privilege and a joy for me to read the book in advance of it coming out. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Be sure to check out our Q&A podcast for intriguing hour-long conversations with people who are making things happen. On this Sunday's episode, journalist and historian Craig Fairman analyzes American presidents through the lens of the books they've written. Mr. Fairman is one of the historians who participated in C-SPAN's Presidential Historian Survey 2021. Find it and follow wherever you get your podcasts.